Saudi Arabia is not really the friend you'd pick for your kickball team if you had a choice. It is the week of May 4th, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jody Herman, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI, and also the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, the United States has been going through the slowest possible withdrawal from the Middle East. President Obama pulled troops out of Iraq, pivoted to Asia, then had to go back to Iraq. President Trump announced that he was pulling American troops out of Syria, then didn't pull them out. But then he did, but only halfway. The changing world energy picture drives some of this. The U.S. is now a net energy exporter after decades of being an importer. And although many of our allies remain dependent on cheap Middle East energy supplies, the United States simply doesn't anymore. Now we're in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic, and we're paying even less attention to the Middle East than before. Many of the big trends in the region, Iran-Saudi rivalry, Sunni-Shia conflict, the role of Russia and of the United States are changing. So it's time for an assessment. Let's talk about Lebanon first. Iran and Saudi Arabia are both playing in Lebanese politics. The economy is in catastrophic shape, and the Lebanese people are demonstrating and rioting. Is Lebanon the sick man of the Levant? Lebanon certainly is in really bad shape, and it was in bad shape before the coronavirus. It has um, been suffering under widespread popular anger and frustration with government ineptitude and a really serious economic collapse, uh, the collapse of Lebanon's currency, etc., that brought people out in massive protests last fall, led to the resignation of the prime minister and the formation of a new government that has Lebanese Hezbollah, a U.S.-designated terrorist organization, even more entrenched in the government in Beirut. And so that government has been ostensibly working to form a platform and figure out what it's going to do to bail Lebanon out of um, these dire economic trades. And then it was hit by the coronavirus. So put all of this together. Lebanon is hosting millions of Syrian refugees. Its security forces are perhaps compromised by out, outsized Hezbollah influence in Lebanon. It borders on Israel, who has repeatedly flown um, drones or fighter aircraft over to warn that they see what Hezbollah is doing, which is the movement of precision-guided munitions into southern Lebanon. And Saudi Arabia actually has basically washed its hands of Lebanon and said, you, you have gone over to the dark side, to Iran and Lebanese Hezbollah, and we're not going to park our money or continue to give assistance anymore. And actually, neither is the United States nor Europe. No more assistance for Lebanon until there are genuine genuine and meaningful reforms by this government. They did announce the government plan very light on details and whether or not a Hezbollah-dominated government is going to be able to tackle corruption, um, deal with the collapsing currency, et cetera, remains to be seen. And then the next question for governments like the United States is whether or not we're going to give assistance to this government. That is backed by Hezbollah, even if they make those reforms. So, Jamil, as, uh, as Dana points out so eloquently, the new prime minister of Lebanon has the full support of Hezbollah, which we know is one of the most vicious terrorist groups in the world. 
Should the U.S. be rooting for his failure? What's the, what's the appropriate approach here? Should we just be hands off or should we be taking active measures? Well, I don't think that, you know, rooting for political failure in Lebanon is, is the right approach for the U.S. Obviously, uh, Lebanon, is, as Dana correctly describes at the heart of some of the Middle East issues, long has been. We've always known that Hezbollah isn't really a successful political force. They are certainly influential. They have the support of Iran uh, and the Iranian government uh, and a lot of money behind them. But they are at, at best a soldier army turned state. This idea, terrorist army really turned state. Um, and the idea uh, that they can bring Lebanon out of its economic catastrophe, hyperinflation uh, and the like, uh, and, and the failed efforts to sort of, you know, half-heartedly dollarize their economy is part of the challenge. Lebanon has real problems. Hezbollah is not the solution. The people of Lebanon are beginning to realize that for their realization, uh, they're being shot in the streets. Um, and that's the real fundamental problem, right? It's a standard move of a of a dictatorship um, and, and, a, and a government that's not really effective instead of uh, listening to its people and, and acting on the challenges it faces, the very real both health, social and economic challenges that country faces uh, to turn on its own people is exactly uh, the mistake that other countries have made. Lebanon ought not make that mistake and Hezbollah ought recognize that uh, it is not a successful governing power. The people of Lebanon have already realized that. And the sooner they put in place a government uh, that is actually effective and will be successful, the better. So Jody, the the Lebanese people have always been one of the most Western-oriented cultures in the Middle East. Um, You know, it's uh, it's been a a center of... um, What are the long-term prospects for democracy in Lebanon, given the chaos we're seeing right now? Right. So we like our problems to be black and white. And I think Lebanon is, is clearly in, in the gray territory. It's a complex sectarian country. It is unique in the Middle East for its permissive political and religious freedoms that are characteristic of a democracy, even if it doesn't necessarily connote a full democracy in action. It is a country that holds elections, but in a system that is rife with corruption and patronage, and the derivatives of democracy just haven't trickled down to the people. And it's hard to not see that, you know, more than 100 days of protest is an indicator of support for accountability and governance that's only realized in a wholly democratic system, and to not see it as rejection of a system that is contrived to benefit the ruling class in Lebanon. Uh, the issue is that the people have politically supported the system, even though they're fed up with it because they fear change or they don't know what that change is or it might cost them their job or, or some other conveniences. So I'm, I'm personally like encouraged by the Lebanese people's belief in the ability of the country to change and to mobilize for that change. I'm, I'm encouraged by the endurance of Lebanese civil society. And I, I want to think that there is real hope for Lebanese democracy and that the citizens are eventually going to reach a juncture where they're going to insist on political change at the ballot box. Let's turn to Yemen, uh, which continues to be the worst humanitarian crisis in the world today. The U.S. has had and continues to have a significant role in this conflict. We've supported the UAE-Saudi alliance against the Houthi rebels. Uh, our, the alliance, the, the group that we're with, uh, declared a ceasefire last month. The Houthis are ignoring it. Fighting's resumed. Coronavirus now appears to be breaking out all over Yemen. What do we think of of the Houthis and the, the fact that Iran is overtly supporting them 
they're they're unashamed. They rarely get called out to the carpet on this. Are they the Iranians overextended in Yemen? Is this them taking advantage of a weak spot in Saudi Arabia's neighbor on Saudi Arabia's southern border? Or are they making a mistake here? I think that Iran's uh, malign activity and support for terrorist groups, rebel organizations, separatist movements is is very easy for them. And it's very low cost. So their support for the Houthis at the beginning was pretty minimal. For Saudi Arabia, their biggest fear is the formation of a Lebanese Hezbollah-like group on their southern border. And unfortunately, what we've seen since 2015 when this war started is that actually it's even more going in that trajectory than it was before. Over the the five years of war, which the Saudis have largely tried to do from the air um, and not on the ground and not look at other ways of co-opting the Houthis into some sort of uh, government, um, it's very easy for the Iranians to send a few guys into Yemen, teach them how to build more precise weapons, how to take the huge stockpiles of weapons that were left in Yemen when the Yemeni government collapsed and make them smarter to target them at Saudi cities. So I do not think the Iranians are overextended because this is not costly for them from a, from a material perspective. The Houthi rebels in Yemen are an offshoot of Shia Islam. So there's some ideological parallels between the regime in Tehran and the Houthis. And at the end of the day, what they both want is to make life untenable for Saudi citizens and for the government of Saudi Arabia. And they're largely doing it because it's unacceptable for any government to have missiles being fired at their population centers on any given day. So Jody, should we have a policy of making Yemen more costly for Iran? Should we be more involved in the conflict there and make uh, the Iranians take a little pain for their support for the Houthis? So I have a hard time reaching that conclusion. I think we have interest in Yemen. It's clearly an area of contestation with Iran, but I'm not sure that I think that we should continue to be involved. And the why is because the cost exceed the benefits. And I'm going to give you a quick four here. First, it's got to be the human cost of this war. There's an estimated 100,000 Yemenis that have died during the course of this five-year war, uh, causing 3.6 million people to flee their homes. 70% of the population lack access to food, safe water, health care. And that was before the corona crisis that is growing in Yemen. Second, you know, while Iran clearly has designs on Yemen, Amongst the concerns that we have with Iran's unhelpful activity in its neighborhood, I'm not sure that Yemen compares adjacent to Syria and Iraq. Third, the damage to the U.S.'s reputation is really significant as a result of the humanitarian crisis. Saudi Arabia is not really the friend you'd pick for your kickball team if you had a choice. They're brutal, but they're also really not very good at the game and not inclined to learn from their mistakes. And last, and certainly not least, is the fact there's no support in the U.S. or even in the U.S. Congress for our continued engagement in in Yemen. And Congress actually explicitly rejected the continuation of the use of force. Donald Trump actually vetoed that resolution. But, you know, when Congress is passing a resolution telling the president, we're done, we want out, somebody's got to take note of that. So, Jamil, what do you think? There's there's not a ton of support in Congress for the U.S. being involved. As Jody points out, it probably hurt our reputation around the world. On the other hand, no Americans lost their lives over Yemen. It was a pretty low-cost military intervention as far as blood and treasure goes. And we were making it more difficult for Iran to carry out its malign activities in the Middle East. So, should we be involved there? Look, I mean, the whole this whole problem is a creation of Iran's malign activities, right? They are involved across 
across the region, you look at Lebanon, you look at Yemen, you look at Iraq, the factor behind all of this is Iran stoking problems. And so uh, we did not bring this conflict to bear. Uh, the Saudis did not bring this conflict to bear. The Iranians brought it by uh, funding the Houthi rebels. And so, yes, we could take, uh, you know, the, the path of least resistance and, you know, Congress always leading from behind, right, uh, to step out there. Boy, we should pull out. We should get, get out of Dodge, right? I mean, it's actually amazing that the, the Trump administration has stepped up to the plate and been willing to uh, continue the efforts there. Um, cutting and running uh, when the Iranians uh, get going is the right play here. The Iranians are, are responsible for this problem in the Middle East, and we have to do what we can to root it out. Now, Jody's exactly right. You know, this, uh, this problem of 4 million displaced people in Yemen alone, in refugee camps tightly packed, uh, is going to be a disaster for COVID. Uh, there are already problems of cholera, diphtheria uh, in the country. You know, the Oxfam estimates that, that 24 million people, fully 80% of the 30 million population in Yemen is in need of emergency humanitarian assistance. While we're uh, trying to root the Iranians out, I think we have to provide care and assistance to people of Yemen who have been uh, affected by this conflict. We can't make the same mistake that we've made in Syria um, and allow that humanitarian disaster to expand. We've already, we've already let it go on for too long in Yemen. Uh, we have responsibility on both sides of this. One, uh, to ensure the Iranians don't dominate uh, this conflict, as they actually have very successfully uh, done fairly well in this conflict, uh, with the Houthis gaining a lot more ground you know, over the course of this five-year war uh, than they had uh, when they were just a sort of ragtag rebel band. Um, you know, so I think there's real problems here, but at the same time, we can't ignore the humanitarian disaster. It doesn't mean we're making it worse. The long-term result uh, is, is, is success for that country. Leaving it to the Iranians and the Houthis is the wrong answer. Dana, the U.S. support for the Saudis and UAE started, as I recall, during the Obama administration. Uh, and has continued now under the Trump administration. What are your thoughts on this important matter? Well, I want to step back for just one minute and respond to something Jamil said, because I don't disagree with him, except he, there's a sequencing error in what he said. The Saudis did not get engaged in Yemen because the Iranians decided to back the Houthis. The Houthis launched multiple military efforts against the Saudis on their border over and over and over. The Saudis always supported the government in Sana'a. Um, the government in Sana'a systematically made sure that the Houthis had no role in the government or received any semblance of equitable resources, whatever resources there actually were in Yemen, etc. The Houthis ran the government out of Yemen, out of Sana'a. The Saudis got militarily involved, and then the Iranians saw an opportunity a low-cost opportunity. And this is one of the problems, I think, with our sort of structural approach to some of these issues, is that the more governments like Saudi respond militarily, it is just an opening for the Iranians to create more mischief. And if we're going to figure out a way to root out Iranian influence in Yemen or break the Iran-Houthi alliance, certainly military operations or more military support are not the answer because it hasn't worked. And we've tried both sides of this a tepid Obama administration response. We're going to provide you limited kinds of intelligence support, limited kinds of military support, but we're not going to fully embrace the Saudi effort in Yemen. That didn't work. The Saudis were largely left on their own, and it didn't go very well for them. And then the Trump administration has completely embraced the Saudis, backed them up on the threats in Yemen, and sought to assist them with the threats emanating on their southern border, and that hasn't helped either. And it hasn't it hasn't shifted the trajectory of this conflict in a way that benefits the Saudis, and it certainly hasn't shifted it toward a political process or an end to the military conflict. And I think that is the fundamental problem in the Middle East, is that more military does not actually get you to the other side of pushing back on Iran. Jody. 
Right. So I think Dana fundamentally focuses is this question about whether or not we're making any progress. We always want to counter the Iranians. I think that's obvious. The question is whether or not Yemen is the right place to do that and whether or not holistically, as you look at the region, this is a place where we should be focusing our efforts and whether or not we come out of this looking better or worse uh, than if we if we step back. And I think that's a question to you, Jamil. Like, what is the U.S. interest here in the broader context of the Middle East and considering Iran's activities, say, in Syria and Iraq, which I would argue are considerably more dangerous? Oh, yeah. There's no question Jody's right that, that their involvement in Syria and Iraq is dramatically more dangerous, which is why I oppose the Obama administration's withdrawal from Iraq, precipitous withdrawal, I mean, it's failure to enforce the red line in Syria. Those failures against Iranian aggression are exactly why the Iranians think they can get away with what they're getting away with in Lebanon and long have, what they're, what they're trying to get away with in Yemen. Our complete and abject failure to confront the Iranians, instead of coddling them with a terrible nuclear deal, is exactly why we need to confront them across the board. Um, and and I, just, to, just to go back to Dana's point, when it comes to this question of who, who supported who first, I think we'll just have to disagree on the facts there. Uh, but the Iranians have been supporting the Houthis since the 80s. Uh, they hosted Houthi students. In fact, the leader of the Houthi rebellion uh, was a student in Iran back in the 80s, and, and they've been backing them since day one. Their support uh, for the Houthis certainly dramatically turned up uh, after uh, President Saleh was out. But this idea somehow that the Iranians weren't behind the Houthis the entire time is completely inaccurate. And the Saudis didn't come across the border until long after the Iranians got involved on the side of the Houthis, after the Hadi government had been pushed out of Sana'a. That's when the Saudis came across the border. And so um, you know, and, and you're right to say the Houthis have been attacking Saudi for a long time. They were attacking Saudi Arabia with the backing of Iranian support, Iranian money, Iranian arms, that Chinese Dow that was captured in 2013 off the coast of, off the coast of Aden, right? This idea somehow that the Iranians have just recently gotten involved because the Saudis came in is completely false. It's a quagmire. It's not a winnable conflict militarily. And the U.S., uh, if we do anything, we should be dragging Iran more into that quagmire, but also diplomatically finding a way out for our allies because they're, they're not going to win that thing. Let's turn to a, a much simpler place, Iraq. In fact, the political turmoil there would, uh, would put Italy to shame. They've had three, maybe four prime ministers designate in the past few months. None of them so far has been able to put together a government that's sustainable. The U.S., of course, has made a huge investment in a democratic Iraq. We still have troops there. Some of them are in harm's way. It's likely we're going to be there for some time. What can the U.S. do in Iraq again to counter what Iran is doing and make them pay a little price and exploit their weaknesses? Right. So I think we have to lay out first that it's not clear that anybody's a kingmaker in Iraq right now. I think we're on the third, maybe it's the fourth prime minister this year. We're up to Mustafa al-Kahimi. And he may be a reasonable choice, but he's also inherited a, a rotten political system, just like Lebanon, encumbered by sectarianism and patronage. Uh, and Iran, of course, is happy for Iraq to remain off kilter. And the Iraqis know that. And I actually think that that's their Achilles heel, is they don't have Iraq's best interests at heart. They have Iran's best interests at heart. And that doesn't surprise anybody uh, in Iraq. I think the one really fascinating piece of disinfo that Iran has sought to sow uh, in Iraq is to blame the Americans, not only for all of Iraq's problems, but there's a conspiracy theory that the United States is in cahoots with ISIS and is withdrawing from key bases in order to create a vacuum for ISIS in Iraq, which is like so absolutely ridiculous that somebody might actually believe it. 
So I think our advantage in, in Iraq is that we aren't Iran, and we need to make our goals really clear that we want a strong, stable, unified Iraq that is politically and economically capable. Just like the Iraqi people, we want an accountable political system and a leader that is focused on national, not regional, sectarian interests, and that we need to foster that view supporting civil society and the Iraqi people who have made their goals clear, and we just need to not be Iran. Dana, uh, the U.S. just a few months ago killed Qasem Soleimani in Iraq. He was the head of the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps and one of the primary malefactors in the region. Of course, we've been involved there since 2003. Uh, it's Iraq is right next to Iran. The two countries have had a, a very difficult relationship for a very long time. Who's who's got more at stake? in Iraq right now, the United States or Iran? Well, Iran certainly believes that it has a lot at stake because of the sanctions architecture on it. It it needs Iraq and it needs a weak Iraq so it can exploit its uh, financial and banking system, so it can dump products onto the Iraqi market, so it can keep Iraq weak and sell electricity, etc. And the United States, if we have an interest in a stable region, where countries are not creating permissive environments for terrorist organizations to thrive, then we have an interest in exactly what Jody said, which is a sovereign, unified Iraq that can push back on on Iranian interference when Iran is interested in keeping Iraq weak. So I would argue if we are interested in a Middle East that is prosperous and stable with accountable governments, probably not going to look like our version of democracy, but governments that at least prioritize the needs of their people and not protecting the elite of these systems where um, goods can flow freely, where people are not oppressed, all of those things. We have an interest in Iraq actually making it out on the other side in, in a way that's stable and sovereign and independent. So Jamil, we continue to be fascinated by these Iranian provocations. They're attacking our our troops in Iraq. Their little navy is harassing our navy in the Persian Gulf and elsewhere. How should we be reacting to this? Doesn't Iran want us to respond to them militarily so that it'll make them look better in the region? Right now, they've got a huge image problem. They're not very popular with the Arab street. Their popularity is at an all-time low. They're looking to pick a fight with us to help themselves. How should we react to that? I, mean, I think we should give them the, the fight they want. Um, let's be honest here. The Iranians respond to force. Uh, they respond to strength. We were successful, at least temporarily, in deterring them after the strike on Qasem Soleimani. It's just that we didn't follow up. Right? We refused to uh, continue the effort forward and to continue to enforce discipline in the region against those who would attack us. The Iranians have now, or at least their proxies in Qatab Hezbollah, Assad al-Haq, and the like, um, have continued to conduct strikes against American forces in the region. Uh, we have not responded since uh, the killing of Qasem Soleimani. Um, and I think that the Iranians see the message from that. In fact, to the contrary, we've continued our drawdown of forces. Um, and it's clear to them, it's clear to them that the president doesn't want to remain in the region. Uh, and that's exactly the problem. If we pull out of our, our efforts in Yemen, um, if we don't try to root Iran out in Lebanon, if we don't go up against them, uh, force against force affirmatively in Iraq. They will see the handwriting on the wall and they will continue to press. Uh, I think Jody's right to highlight these statements by the Secretary General of Assad al-Haq, who suggests that the U.S. is responsible by withdrawing. Harkat Hezbollah said the same thing, that we're responsible for ISIS having more uh, influence in the region. Of course, it was those same uh, individuals in the Iraqi parliament who voted for the U.S. leave after we killed Qasem Soleimani. So they won, we killed Soleimani. They then say, we need to leave the country. As you have to draw, draw down, they say, oh, by the way, you're drawing down and that's letting ISIS come in. I mean, you cannot win. Um, and the bottom line is that the Iraqi people are finally starting to see 
uh, again, like the Lebanese are and like the Yemenis long have, the negative influence of Iran in, these, in this region and the importance uh, of the U.S. staying in the region and accounting for that fight and doing what it takes to respond to Iran is the most important uh, aspect, I think, across the region. Um, and that's why, I think, to back to Jody's earlier point, why Yemen matters. It's not that it matters more than Syria or Lebanon or Iraq, but it matters too because it's part of that larger conflict. Two things that I want to say. The first one is the Iraqi parliament actually did not vote to expel U.S. forces because they didn't have quorum. They forced the vote and it wasn't a legitimate vote by their own standards, but it was interpreted to be that way. And I think that's important nuance because the United States tends to see Iraq policy only through the lens of Iran's and not Iraq for itself. And this is where I think Iran views Iraq in existential terms. If Iraq is not compliant toward and supplicate to Tehran, the Iranians believe they have a problem. And for us, we're still torturing ourselves and twisting ourselves in this debate about whether Iraq matters for us and matters for the Middle East, and, and not just the Middle East oriented toward Iran, but the wider Middle East. And two, is this notion that the Iranians only respond to force. I do think there are select times when the Iranians have responded to force, but this notion of the Trump administration claiming it's restored deterrence, I mean, I think our messages are all, all over the place. The president threatens to blow Iranian ships or dows out of the water, and then the Navy says, well, we haven't changed our rules of engagement at all. And so actually our messages are quite mixed. And I also think the Iranians utilize the fact that the United States is very isolated in its approach to Iran. So it's one thing to threaten force, but is it a credible threat of force? And two, if we had the Europeans and the rest of the, the region united behind us and pushing back on Iran the way we're doing it, then I think it would be an effective policy. But unfortunately, most of the region is interested in de-escalation, which is why they're all sending teams of diplomats under the guise of, oh, a Coast Guard exchange or, oh, this or, oh, that. But they're all going to Tehran to talk to the Iranians because we are so wildly unpredictable here in Washington. And that is about the Trump administration, not the Obama administration. Uh, clearly, the administration needs to do a lot more on the diplomatic front. I think their approach to taking a tough line in Iraq is the right one. It gives them the leeway to be smarter in Yemen and look for more of a negotiated or diplomatic solution there, which is also good for our allies. But taking the tough line in Iraq is something uh, that we should be working with as many allies as we can find on that. All right, let's pull back and look at the big picture, overall U.S. involvement in the region. President Trump, of course, as we said earlier, pulled our troops, at least a big chunk of them, out of Syria. He may be doing the same thing in Afghanistan over the next year or so, given the very tentative and loose peace agreement with the Taliban there. Is it time for the U.S. to be letting others handle the mess that is the Middle East. What's wrong exactly with letting Russia and Turkey get their hands dirty in the grand scheme of things? Jamil, you go first. Well, we've seen the show before, Les. When we, when we took the peace dividend uh, after the end of the Cold War, we let our guard down, 9-11 happened. When we decided to precipitously, precipitously withdraw from the Middle East from Iraq um, under President Obama, ISIS came to, came to the fore, right? When we failed to back our allies in Estonia and Georgia, Russia took the next step to Crimea. And there's more to come. Uh, when we let our guard down in the, in the Asian theater, uh, China built militarized islands around the side China Sea. Everywhere you look, when the U.S. has stepped out of leadership and stepped out of tending its own interests and those of our allies, uh, our enemies have gathered in number, gathered in force, and gathered in capability. It has never worked to our benefit. We've always had to go back and address the problems not because we're the world's policemen, but because we have very real strategic interests in those regions. And the idea somehow that because we're now uh, independent uh, when it comes to oil production, or at least relatively independent, uh, that the Middle East doesn't matter is a joke. 
right? The reality is the world price of oil does matter, right? American producers today are unable to produce at the prices they are at because the Saudis and the Russians have flooded the oil market. And that's, and that's why we can't produce it at, at the rates we need to. And so uh, we do depend on the world price of oil. The Middle East does still matter. Uh, there are both humanitarian and political and economic reasons for us to be there. And our enemies watch what we're doing. And so the Chinese, the Russians, the North Koreans watch what we do in the Middle East um, and watch our withdrawal. And they're watching what we're doing with Afghanistan. They're seeing that after we cut this piece with the, with the Taliban, violence against Americans and violence against our allies in the region has only increased. And so if we continue to withdraw under conditions where we said we will only withdraw when there's peace, right? And we've signed a peace deal and, and the very people on the other side of the table are violating the peace deal. If we continue the withdrawal, as the president indicated he is likely to do, right? That would just demonstrate yet another failure of American foreign policy. America is most successful and our allies are most successful when we lead by example and we do what it takes to protect our own interests and those of our allies. We have not done that for the better part of two presidencies. And to continue to do this is a, would be a failure of, of both American imagination and American foreign policy and national security. Jody, what's your, what's your take overall on, uh, on the region? Does the U.S. have more flexibility to kind of maybe take at least a half a step back and let others uh, get their hands dirty here or no? Do we have to, to remain fully engaged? Yeah, so I think we're a little uh, SOL uh, in this case. Like, obviously, we shouldn't have gone into Iraq to begin with. We took on a little bit too much in Afghanistan. We should have acted in Syria in 2013 under uh, responsibility to protect. And now we're stuck. We can't seek space to Iran or Turkey or to Russia. So we're, we're in a bit of a mess. What I want to come back to, though, is Jamil's point is that we need to demonstrate leadership. And I agree, but I think we need to talk about what leadership is. Leadership doesn't mean necessarily military engagement. Leadership means diplomatic engagement. It means building relationships with allies to support a country politically uh, and economically. If you take a look at what China's doing outside of, particular, if you don't look at what they're doing inside China, which is really grotesque with the Uyghurs and others, but you don't see them acting militarily, like they're exerting their authority through diplomatic, but really actually through, through economic means, right? So if we wanna play this game, we wanna be a leader, that leadership can't only be military leadership. It needs to be diplomatic leadership and it needs to be economic leadership. And I don't think, I, actually, I really don't think we're having that conversation about the Middle East at all right now. We're just talking about moving militaries around. We're talking about moving pieces on the game board and we're not actually talking about what matters to people on the ground. So I wanna start where Jamil left off, which is about American foreign policy and leadership. But I think what's missing here is how American foreign policy and American leadership abroad translates into economic security or um, national security for us at home. And the question of whether or not the US can take a step back, I think is a rather unnuanced view. And that's where I build on what Jody said, which is, the mix of tools that we bring to bear in any region of the world. And right now, we really only talk about military and military capabilities and numbers of boots on the ground. The question for Americans is, are we ready to accept a world in which we're not the leader? And what does that look like in the Middle East? So I think in the Middle East, it looks like what's happened in Syria, which is the Iranians provided a ground force and the Russians provided an air force to a war criminal in Damascus who use chemical weapons, starvation, torture, systematic rape, all on his own people to force them into submission and outflow of refugees, not only in the region, but all the way to Europe, which has shifted the political discourse in European countries towards more right-wing parties that are themselves 
bordering on anti-democratic movements. And so then those countries and those political parties are having active debates about whether they're interested in democracy, whether they're interested in, in open trade, whether they're interested in values-based policies, both in their own home countries and abroad. So are we willing to accept a region where Russia rules or where we don't get preferential access in the Suez Canal and the Chinese do first? What does that mean, not just for our military movements, but for our economic and commercial interests? And I think that's the conversation we're not having. What exactly does it look like for the Middle East to be dominated by a Russia or a China? And then what are the ripple effects of that way beyond the Middle East? And is that an acceptable world for Americans to live in? I, I think I come down in the middle of, of you guys. Jody, with all due respect to uh, our friend Samantha Power, I'm not sure responsibility to protect is any kind of model for intervention. The, the one great example, Libya, is, uh, is not a good example of a well-executed policy or even a framework for a policy. We've made a ton of mistakes in Iraq uh, we made almost the opposite mistakes in Syria. Neither result is very good. We need to be smarter. Uh, we need to stay involved. We also need more people working with us. We need to take more steps to get Europe on our side. And we also need to force, frankly, uh, China to take a more responsible role in the region. Uh, they're drafting behind us. They're letting us be the policemen in the Middle East, and we shouldn't let them do it. They're the ones who really benefit. Uh, from the lower price of oil. Jamil, I know you want to jump back in. Actually, I think, Les, I think you covered most of what I was going to say. I think the, the only point that I would make is, um, you know, look, I, I think it is obviously critical that we use all tools of American power. Uh, that being said, we have seen, okay, what simply going to the diplomatic or the economic option looks like, right? We saw it for eight years under President Obama, and it was a disaster for American foreign policy in the Middle East. It was a disaster for American foreign policy leadership around the world, right? Simply saying, we're going to be friends with everybody, and make nobody upset, and we're just going to pull our troops out from around the world like President Trump would like to do when it comes to Afghanistan and Iraq, is a failed policy. I agree. Economics, diplomacy are important. It has to be backed by the credible threat of military force. And let's be honest, over the last 12 years, we have sat ourselves of that, of that tool because we have been unwilling, with the exception of the Qasem Soleimani effort, we've been unwilling to use that element of power. And that is exactly why we're in the position we are today with Russia with Iran, with North Korea and its nuclear weapons program, and with China. Our enemies are on the ascent. Our friends don't trust us is because we are afraid and scared of our own shadow and afraid to use a military instrument of power. And we've said for too long, it's all about diplomacy. It's all about economics. La, la, la. Look it. Until you have threat, credible threat of military force, this doesn't work. Three super quick points. One left. I'm not talking about a Libya-style engagement. In fact, that's explicitly what I said, is that that cannot be our modus operandi. Second, you can't underestimate the value of a humanitarian response as a tool of political influence. And third, uh, the thing that, can I put the thing on the table that we don't do is we don't actually talk to people. We talk to governments and we talk to leaders and we don't actually talk to and work with the people who are exactly the people we should be talking to. That's our audience. It's not whoever the current prime minister of Iraq is. All right. Uh, we'll call that a wrap on uh, the Middle East portion of this podcast. Let's go to uh, our final item, which is another issue you are following that isn't necessarily in the headlines. I'm happy to go first. Uh, I'm watching with great interest the Trump administration's decisions in Greenland, where we are reopening a consulate. Uh, and we are starting a foreign assistance program of about $12 million. Recall that uh, the president uh, made a 
rather awkward and public and strange attempt to buy Greenland from Denmark. Greenland is part of Denmark. Denmark, of course, is one of the most prosperous countries in the world, an enormously rich country. And now we have a foreign aid program in, Den in effectively part of Denmark. Uh, the weird thing is it actually makes sense. Uh, we should be more involved in Greenland. Greenland is a key uh, strategic point in the Arctic, which is uh, becoming the new battle space uh, between competing interests from the U.S., China, and Russia. So this is actually, these are positive developments. It's good we're involved in Greenland. Many of our listeners may be following the systematic removal of inspectors general across the U.S. government. One that I'm particularly interested in right now with the foreign policy bent is the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, otherwise known as SIGAR, uh, working out of Afghanistan, who produces quarterly reports that normally include attack patterns of the Taliban on both coalitions forces and Afghan forces. Although since the Trump administration has been um, engaging in talks with the Taliban about the removal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan. The coalition is not turning over its data on attacks by the Taliban against coalition forces. So the CIGAR had to publish its quarterly report without the very standard level of detail it normally includes about attack patterns by the Taliban. So you can't actually tell whether or not the Taliban is adhering to its commitments with the Trump administration about whether or not it's going to reduce its attacks as a good faith measure as the talks go on. Jamil. So I'm following the political and health situation in Russia. Uh, over the weekend, they announced their single highest 24-hour infection rate from COVID. Uh, over 10,000 people in a single 24-hour period reported in Russia. Beyond that, obviously, global oil price is a key source of revenue for uh, the petro state that is Russia today. It has been a huge problem for them economically. Vladimir Putin's approval ratings, while high by any other standards at 63%, are at record lows for him. The last time they were this low was right before the invasion of Crimea that generated support for him. It would not be surprising for us to see an effort by Vladimir Putin and his cronies to do something to regenerate support within the Russian populace, to distract them from the very real threat the coronavirus poses in the country and their failure to be effective against it. It wouldn't surprise me if you see them start doing stuff overseas, whether in Syria or in Eastern Europe, uh, to stoke nationalist Russian uh, support for the government. Uh, it's a tried into tactic of regimes like his. So that's something I'm keeping an eye on. All right. So I'm tracking the Czech government's protection of three Prague officials, including the mayor of Prague, from a possible rice and poison attack by Russia. So the city of Prague has put three officials under protection after learning that a Russian operative has entered the country with a supply of rice in. So these are all three officials are critics of the Putin regime next door and have taken steps to make clear, uh, to make that clear, like renaming the space in front of the Russian embassy born Nemtsov Square after the murdered Russian dissident and removing a statue of a Soviet general, prompting Putin to sign into law legislation criminalizing vandalism of Soviet war memorials outside of Russia. So both that enactment into law, as well as the ongoing efforts by Russia to poison anybody, it's this like seems absolutely unhinged. 
and makes me wonder who's providing political advice to the Kremlin. All right, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for being the best producer and director in all of podcast land. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Thank you.